morning. How are you? Is the cold like affecting your, yeah, okay, good, awesome. I am so glad you're here this morning. My name's Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here along with Mike, and um, man, I love this weather. Somebody said, let's close the window this morning. I'm like, no, open them wider. I love this weather. We've been suffering from the humidity for the last couple of uh, months, and so I know I'm not inviting on the snow, so <laughs> I don't want the snow yet. I'm just, I'm, I'm a fall guy, totally, so that's really, uh, that's really my, uh, my favorite time of the year. Um, we uh, started a new sermon series last week called Charisma, which means gifts, and we're talking about the spiritual gifts um, and how really in this season as a church, we really want uh, each and every one of you uh, to discover your gift that the Holy Spirit that God himself has given to you to serve. And so um, if you're not familiar with this idea, a lot of you guys are you're newer Christians or you're kind of still investigating, don't be alarmed when we say spiritual gifts. What we mean by this uh, when we say spiritual gifts is that God has actually given each one of us as a follower of Jesus a capability beyond ourselves to uh, build up the church to accomplish his purpose in the world. Uh, to say it another way, we're bringing, we're bringing the culture of God's kingdom by awakening people to their identity and destiny. We're bringing the culture of God's kingdom down here, right? Or not that God's kingdom is up there, but we're bringing it here by awakening people to their identity and their destinies, right? Um, it's not to spotlight talented people. We're not like showcasing people's gifts and talents. This is not, you know, American Idol or anything like that. It really, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, which is our, our key verse for this, past, uh, for this series, that this is actually your spiritual gifts are, are lived out so it can build up uh, and it's made for the common good, Paul says. This is for everybody. My giftedness is not for me to be spotlighted. It's for everybody. And I have a chart up here um, and, uh, you know, that answers the question, what's the purpose of spiritual gifts? And if you're type A, kind of like me, like chart, flow chart oriented, this helps. If you're not and you're very artistic, this may not help, okay? Uh, but to kind of give you a visual picture, spiritual gifts builds the body of Christ. The body of Christ brings the culture of God's kingdom here to earth, all right? So this is kind of the flow. You, the spiritual gifts are meant to build the body of Christ. It's meant to make it strong, to make it mature, to make it uh, filled with integrity, to make it um, uh, relevant, and, and to, to not make it, uh, to keep it from being ignorant of culture. Building the body, body of Christ, why? Because it, the body of Christ is the vessel that brings the culture of God's kingdom here to earth. And so there's, in the, in the Bible, several passages that list out um, um, gifts and the main gifts that we're going to look at are going to be focused on these three passages, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14, Romans chapter 12, and Ephesians chapter 4. There's some uh, gifts scattered out there, but we didn't want to talk about the gift of singleness because a lot of you guys don't want that gift. Uh, so uh, there are some gifts that we kind of filtered off the list. Uh, <laughs> all the single people nervously laugh. Uh, and, um, but we're going to focus on about 20 primary gifts that, again, uh, after kind of um, going back and forth, we looked at the list and we're like, yeah, I mean, there may be more than these 20 that the Bible listed, but uh, a lot of them can fall underneath the categories already listed, and a lot of them are just different expressions of the same gifts. So um, over the next, uh, boy, I think nine weeks or so, we're going to be walking through the 20 gifts, all right? I promise our sermons won't be longer just because we're talking about all 20 gifts. Um, what we're going to do is we're actually going to try to group three gifts together, uh, two to three gifts together each week. Uh, last week we said 
that, again, uh, spiritual gifts aren't about you showcasing, you know, uh, your gifts and your talents so that you can get recognized for. Uh, but why? What does it mean to discover your spiritual gifts? And it's a little bit different than kind of taking your Myers-Briggs, your, you know, strength finders, your disc, you know, those kinds of things. We said last week that discovering your spiritual gift isn't a managerial strategy for growing a religious organization. So we're not trying to become more organized so we can grow an organization. That's not what spiritual gifts are really about. Uh, spiritual gifts are about discovering, or sorry, it's about nurturing the relationship you have with the Holy Spirit. When you became a follower of Jesus, uh, he, he, God put a, a, his spirit inside of you. And so discovering your spiritual gift is about discovering this relationship and nurturing it. Uh, the relationship with the Holy Spirit so that together you can influence the people around you in the way that Jesus would, all right? Not in the way that you would influence people necessarily on your own, but in the way that Jesus would do it. The Holy Spirit does that through you. You're not stewarding skills and talents necessarily. You're stewarding a person that lives inside of you, the Holy Spirit. And so there's, li- there's joy, there's, there's laughter, there's crying, there's awe, there's electric moments, there's love, there's helping others, there's healings, there's miracles. The, that's the result of a relationship with the Holy Spirit. That's what we're talking about. However, after uh, last week, I got some great responses that really appreciated the Holy Spirit stuff. And then some of you guys said, but how do I discover my gift? Like, do I just take the online assessment that you recommended last week, or is there another way that you discover your gift? So I want to tackle that real quick before we move on to the actual gifts that we're going to study today. So the overwhelming question that came out of last week was, how do I discover my spiritual gift? And so I uh, got this uh, basic kind of process from another pastor that I've been reading, and I want to throw this out there so that if you're asking that question, how do I discover how I'm gifted to build the body, uh, you at least have a map of where you're going, okay? And so the first thing is just to practically serve, practical servanthood. You look around and you say, what are the needs that we have? What are the things that I have an affinity towards? And you just practically serve in that, right? It might be in the church. It might be outside of the church. But there's some need that's related to the cause of Christ that you pray. For some of us, this is the hardest step because it requires time and a little bit of commitment. Uh, But this is the most practical step. It's not that you take an assessment and it tells you, oh, you're great at this, and then you just jump into it. For most of us, we're going to start the journey of discovering how God's built us to help the church by actually practically serving, all right? And then we move on to the next one. From that, you begin to gain experience. Within that experience, you begin to identify your gift set. What role in this team inspires me to do my best? What do others see in me? That's when you've, you've served in something for a while, and you're like, you know what? I'm not really that upfront person, but I really like to handle the details and in, in, in behind the scenes. So some of you guys, you're beginning to discover that for yourself, um, and you're, you're going to begin to begin to find more of a kind of a, a role or a, a specific niche um, as you begin to serve. And thirdly, then you begin to have a focus uh, and a ministry. You begin asking questions like, how can I improve how I'm actually like imparting the Holy Spirit or actually uh, helping others to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit onto this team and those I serve. So you've been doing it for a while. You kind of have a a bit of a a role now. And then you're asking, how do I get better at this? Fourthly, once you get beyond that, that's when you begin to start equipping other people. You're now in a role where you're like, hi, you know, I've done this long enough. Like I've served in St. Jamestown long enough or I've done body life uh, long enough or I've been doing things long enough that I can begin to help bring other people along. And so now you're moving from kind of just a practical to now more of a coaching uh, experience with, um, 
with the body of Christ. And then uh, fifthly, you begin to do further discovery. And you're like, hey, I really like this coaching thing. Like, for instance, if you're in body life groups and you've been beginning to, body life groups is our small groups we meet throughout the week. And if you've been doing that and you began teaching and then you began helping other people teach, you might start thinking, hey, you know, I really like that. I actually like helping other people to teach the Bible. You're actually beginning to uh, further discover the things. And all that started out was with you actually joining a body life group or you actually serving on a team, right? And so um, move on to sixth. Uh, you begin having what uh, this author says, gift clusters. You begin to think that, okay, this over here, I'm good at leadership and teaching and starting new things. I'm really good. So you begin to see that these gifts you know, that seem a little bit separated at first. I was doing this for kids. I was doing this, you know, for evangelism. I was doing this for, um, you know, our connections team. I can see kind of the theme, right? And so you're beginning to figure out uh, your gift set. Uh, and so uh, you're clustering them together. Uh, and then over time, uh, you begin to find uh, what this author calls a kingdom uh, niche. Do you say niche or I say niche? <laughs> Uh, kingdom niche. You know, it sounds so much more sophisticated. Finally, after 12 years, I have a better idea of what I'm spiritually gifted at. So that the idea is that you've, a, you've actually meaningfully plugged in, loved a community, served a community, sacrificed, and then God's now, after X amount of years, God's saying, you see? You see where you fit in this thing? And so we can't, we don't start with the assessment. You start with practically serving. And so the discovery process is in the midst of the relationships, in the midst of loving people and serving people and seeing fruit come out of it. And God says, you see how I gifted you? And you look back and you say, you know, after, after five years of this thing, I can really see that God really put me here for this reason. It's always in retrospect. Very rarely is it kind of planning forward that you know exactly your niche. So I hope that encourages you as to kind of map out a process for your life. Um, for your life. Wow. Uh, I, I didn't give you that. Uh, for how to f discover your spiritual gifts, um, at least within the context of serving the church, but potentially for your life as well, okay? Um, so, uh, again, all of this is couched in the bigger picture of nurturing a relationship with God, where we say hear, hearing God's voice, trusting Him, and obeying Him. It's never the gift over the gift giver. It's always about the gift giver, which is God, the Holy Spirit. With that in mind, the Bible teaches us that there are about 20 different gifts that you can actually seek after gifts. You can actually say, God, could you give me more of that? I remember when I was 18 praying the prayer, God, would you make me more of an evangelist? Would you give me the gift of evangelism? And it wasn't that God just all of a sudden supernaturally gave me that gift of evangelism. It was that he began giving me opportunities to share the story of Jesus with people. And so uh, the, the, the way that he answered that was it was very practical. He put people in my life that he began to share uh, the story of Jesus with. I remember asking God, make me a better leader. And the, reason, the way that God made me a better leader was he created a bunch of problems around me. And so I had to figure those problems out. And by far, that's how things happen. There are gifts that you seek after. We're going to talk, talk about next week uh, that, G, uh, that Paul says that the, uh, one of the gifts that he wants everyone in the body to seek after is the gift of prophecy. And so today we're going to look at um, three gifts, leadership, serving, and helps. They're listed in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. Paul doesn't give an exhaustive explanation of all of those gifts. But for some of you, you never thought of yourself as a leader or, or somebody who has served or help-oriented. 
Some of you, your gifts are very latent. They're latent because it hasn't been applied or it hasn't been discovered or it's just not a season yet. And so I hope that as we're preaching through some of these things that you will feel released actually to a season of a particular gift. Uh, Because for some of us, our gifts aren't necessarily lifelong. There are some gifts that will stay with you for a season and God will activate other gifts. Actually, and and this is kind of besides the point, but in Ephesians chapter 4, it says that all the gifts actually come from Jesus himself. So these spiritual gifts aren't like innately a part of you. It's different from a natural gifting. That as a matter of fact, it comes from Jesus himself. And so that leads me to think that there could be seasons in which you don't activate or you don't live out a certain gift because God is activating other gifts um, in you. Our passage today from Acts chapter 6 is an excerpt from the book of Acts illustrating the importance of releasing people into leadership and serving gifts. The importance of releasing people into leadership and into serving. Um, but also this, this story that we just read earlier, it, it, it illustrates the Christian value of justice and equality. I also don't want to just sweep that under the rug. That actually the story is about justice and equality. But the importance of how they got justice and equality was they released leaders and servants into the body of Christ. Our ideas of power in the Christian faith is completely flipped upside down. And you'll see this in this story. Society values the elite or, you know, the uh, influential or the, uh, those who have and those who have not, right? You might say, well, there's grassroots movements, and grassroots movements do make a difference. But there's a reason why grassroots movements exist, because there's a gap between those who have and those who have not. And so the Christian ethic, actually, they work together to, to narrow that gap between those who have and have not. And so what you see in this particular story is there is an injustice. They released leaders and servants into the community, and that injustice, uh, the gap between the uh, injustice began to narrow, all right? And so uh, to me, that, that, that's really cool for somebody who is very concerned about issues of justice to see that as people lived out their spiritual giftings, they, they began to eradicate the very things that were um, uh, deteriorating their society. One thing that we should understand about uh, the story in the book of Acts is that the church in Jerusalem they were culturally Jewish. Yesterday, uh, my brother and I, we were, uh, my family moved. Hey, thanks for all of you who came out to help me move yesterday. Love you guys. Uh, I owe you some pho or a steak or something. Uh, we had pizza yesterday. But my brother and I, we were dropping off the U-Haul, and um, uh, we were driving uh, through uh, Lawrence and uh, uh, the Allen near where uh, Mike and Misty live. And there were a bunch of Jewish uh, guys. They were out after the Sabbath, and they were kind of just... Uh, um, out socializing. Uh, it was a very Jewish, culturally uh, uh, um, strong uh, ch- uh, church in Jerusalem. And so everybody was kind of the same uh, initially. Uh, so what happened was that the message of Jesus was radically different from the ethnic message of Judaism. And so the church in Jerusalem began to diversify for the first time. After some years, uh, the message that Jesus said, which was the kingdom of God, was open to everybody. That began to diversify the body of Christ in Jerusalem. And they were having multicultural church for the first time. And so what happened was there was a group of people called the Hellenists. And they were saying, oh, you know, we aren't, we're Jewish But we started hanging out with the Greeks several generations ago. Um, But I think we can begin to reintegrate into the Jewish people again because we can see that they're accepting of us. All right. So I don't know if you feel that way. I go to a Chinese restaurant. They speak Chinese to me. I feel a little bit weird because I'm not, number one, I'm not Chinese. But I also feel like I'm second, third generation. 
And so, like, I don't know if I want to reintegrate back into something that's very culturally Asian, all right? So some of you Asians, you understand this, right? And so, so the Hellenists, which they were Jewish in culture, but Greek, uh, sorry, Jewish in ethnicity, but Greek in culture, they begin to reintegrate back into the Jewish community. Uh, and so the, 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 the gospel, Jesus, he made this happen. As a matter of fact, there were even Greeks. We saw earlier that there's a guy from uh, Antioch that was a part of this group. And so what happened in the story was they begin to neglect the Hellenist uh, widows. And you and I are thinking, ah, that's, I mean, that's really not, a, I mean, it's a big deal. It's not a big deal, but like, what's going on? What's, what, what do you mean neglecting the distribution of the food to the widows? Because that was the complaint that arose. The Hellenists said, you're not feeding the, 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 the widows in our community. And so there, this complaint rose to the apostles. And I want you to understand something about this, right? Because this is not about food distribution so much. What happened was in the first century, the Romans, they had no culture of taking care of the elderly or the sick. It wasn't a part of their, their culture. And so the Christians were among the first to begin to systematize a social program to come around those who were elderly and sick. The apostles had this strong desire that if we were going to be Jesus' people, we needed to care for those who were the least of these in society. And in our society, where they valued the cultural elite, they disvalued the elderly and the sick. And so the apostles came up with this ministry idea. Let's be Jesus to those who are elderly and to those who are sick, and let's take care of them. The ones that society doesn't want, let's bring them in. This is what caused the early church to explode. It's because the, uh, the apostles and the early disciples brought in those that, uh, that were disregarded from society. And so they began this ministry, in a sense, to those who were widows and sick and the elderly. And so this was, in a sense, their witness, their evangelism. This is what grew the church early on in Jerusalem. And so what happened was, um, uh, well, well, let's read this quote real quick, because I want you to understand um, the environment in which um, they were doing the food distribution to the, the sick and to the elderly. Uh, one historian from Oregon State University says, Roman culture simply did not encourage a felt responsibility to assist the destitute, sick, or dying. Without a family, you simply had no support system. No one to take care of you when you were sick. No one to help you with food, rent when you couldn't work. No one to bury you when you died. Destitute families lacking any resources to help sometimes even abandon the chronically ill to die. The apostles saw this. The apostles says, our faith can't allow this to happen. The apostles began a ministry to help those who were elderly and sick. They brought them in. The church began to grow. Except what happened was the apostles hit a cap on their skill set. This was not a, you ask the question, well, if they love the elderly so much, how could they neglect the widows of the Hellenist community? It was not a heart issue of the apostles. It was a skill issue. The apostles were great at doing evangelistic ministry to build the ministry. They weren't great or gifted at maintaining the ministry. So what happened was um, uh, they were godly, their hearts were still there, but um, they weren't gifted in the organizational gifts that the body of Christ needed. They weren't gifted in the areas of leading, serving, and helping. They were the idea guys. They were the, we see where the, the, the need is. Let's go there. They were the catalyst leaders. They started the ministry. They began to make an impact. They began to see things happen, but they got to a point where they reached their maximum, and there was like, 
so the injustice happened it wasn't because they were being oppressive the injustice happened because those who were gifted in leadership and servanthood they weren't released to their ministry and so um they come up with a, a really good idea so the idea is the apostles and this is how i can this is how i imagine it playing out in my head i imagine that the uh, 12 apostles or Jesus' 12 original disciples, uh, minus one. Um, I can imagine them just like coming to the people, like just like burnt out and feeling a bit nervous and saying, okay, uh, yes, I'm sorry this has happened. Like, let's say you're the Hellenist. Like, I'm sorry this has happened to you guys. We're doing the best that we can. Um, like, but could you guys figure it out? We, we got to the point where, like, we know this is valuable, and we're, we're trying not to neglect you guys, but we can't figure this thing out. Can, can you guys come up with a solution? Can you, because we don't want this to be a bad witness to, to the rest of the world, but we understand that we are the bottleneck of this. And so they come to the congregation, and they say, if, if you chose seven guys that were wise and full of the Holy Spirit, I bet you they could figure this out. And so what happened was the solution that the seven guys came up with was so much better than the, uh, the apostles. There, as a matter of fact, the seven guys were like, okay, let's minister. These guys were actually from the Hellenist community. The, the injustice was corrected when they allowed those who were culturally, um, uh, who, 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 who didn't have power in the culture to begin to lead, number one. So the injustice began to be corrected there. Because if you look at the seven names, um, uh, we don't have to put them up, but they're all Greek names. So these were not the Jewish like powers that be that were leading. It was the, the powerless that began to lead. And so they came up with solutions. They came up with ways to lead. They came up with ways to figure out the problem. They had found the people who cooked and prepared the food. They had found those who would distribute the food. They had found the, And so there was no burnout for those uh, who were involved because everybody was released to their gifts. And so um, the, if we go back to the passage, Teresa, um, there was a result that happened, uh, verse 7. First of all, the response everybody said was, OMG, you finally realized that you were the bottleneck, Peter. <laughs> we, we all knew this already. We all love it when you guys talk about, uh, you know, reaching Jerusalem. We love that part. We just don't think you should be managing our church. And so their response is, oh, yes, great idea. We'll figure this out. I mean, that was their response. Uh, sorry, it was that in, the, in the previous verses. Their response is, this sounds good to us. That's, that was their response. And what happened is when they actually raised up leaders and servants and those who were helping, uh, the result was in verse 7 that the word of God continued to increase. They were able to stay focused on the main thing. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. A great many of priests came to be obedient to the faith. You see, when people begin to live out in their gift sets, the mission went further. The worst thing that could happen in a church is the, the work and the decision-making and the uh, influence is concentrated around a small group of people. And I think what we're saying in this series is, please, no more. <laughs> Some of you guys are saying, OMG, <laughs> I'm glad, because you guys shouldn't be managing this church. <laughs> Stick to the preaching. 
Uh, <laughs> stick to the visioning, but let the managing go to somebody else. Right? When this happened, the mission went so much further. I don't think this is an um, isolated instance, that because they released the work to leaders and to those who were serving, that the mission went further. I think this is the way things go. This is why Paul is preaching in three and four of his letters about the body of Christ working together to build itself up. This is the whole point of spiritual gifts, so that the mission can go further. And so, um, let's see, am I off notes here? Okay. So what I want to do is uh, talk about real quickly uh, the gift of leadership. For a lot of us, you don't feel like you have that gift. Nobody's ever said that you're a leader and you don't feel that way. I want to begin to describe some of this because I think that um, uh, as we talk about the gift of leadership, you can see that it actually works itself out in a couple of different ways. Uh, the question is, what is the spiritual gift of leadership? And I think we've got some slides up here. Um, instead of describing the actual gift, I want to describe how some of us have come to realize that we have the gift of leadership. Uh, it's more about influence than it is position. If you grew up in the church around the 70s and 80s, it was all about the positions. Deacon of the carpet, deacon of the, you know, the, the, the steering financial committee. Uh, you know, it's a, <laughs> the, we, I grew up in a culture where everybody had, if you didn't have a position, you weren't a leader in the church. In the New Testament church, leadership was more about influence than it was about position. Uh, secondly, it, uh, it's more about direction than authority. You're providing direction. You're not, you're not uh, being authoritative over people's life. Uh, it's sacrificing for those who are under your care. That leaders often sacrifice, not, uh, uh, not are being sacrificed for, but they actually sacrifice. Uh, it's humble yet assertive Christian leadership. Uh, it's presence over professionalism. It's about being there. It's about being available. Uh, there's a few of you in our church where um, uh, we're just like, I just need you to be there. Uh, <laughs> I feel safer when you're there. And so there's a, there's a sense of presence that you carry with you. It's not a sense of professionalism, but it's almost this like commanding presence that you have with you. Um, and then it's about character over knowledge. And these are the things that uh, God has placed in a Christian leader. Again, you may never have a title. You are the chair of so-and-so committee, uh, or you are the leader of this particular ministry. And that does help. Work delineation, role responsibilities, that does help. But by and large, when you're gifted in these ways, this is how you feel. This is how you behave. This is how you act. How do you know if God's gifted you with leadership? So how do you know? This is, those are the things that you're looking for. But how do I know personally? And so I wrote about uh, seven or eight things uh, here. Uh, you actually don't mind making hard decisions. It's not that you like making hard decisions, but you don't, you don't mind making hard decisions. You like to be a part of the group that makes hard decisions. Right? Uh, and then uh, historically, you are known for making good decisions. Uh, can I tell you this, that if you historically make bad decisions, <laughs> you may not be a strong candidate as a Christian leader in the church. But if you're known for making really good decisions in your life uh, and uh, for other people, uh, that could be a sign and indication. Uh, you have a strong desire to confront sin, evil, and injustice. And this is so important in the Christian faith because it's so easy to be bend into the culture or to kind of bend into trends. But a Christian leader has a strong sense of like, it's, there's a moral compass. Right? 
uh, they have this sense of which when, in, when they see injustice, that we, we can't stand here, guys, and do nothing about it. Uh, you put hearing God for others as important as hearing God for yourself. That you're not the self-help person always going around trying to get your next religious fix. Actually, you go to God because you're going to God for other people. You look for a way when there doesn't seem to be a way. Everybody says, no, we can't do that. You're like, let's rethink that. Come on, let's, let's, spend, let's spend one more hour on this and let's see if we can figure this out. Um, I think we can do something. I think we can do something here. Um, you take initiative. Uh, you're not waiting for uh, a lot of instruction. You kind of take things and you kind of run with it and you develop it. Nobody has really given you full kind of instructions. You kind of do it on your own. You feel reluctant to lead, but you know it's the right thing. And this is my favorite quality of a leader is because the one who says, hey, I'm, I'm so qualified to do this, uh, that's the one that I'm saying, yeah, let's give it six, seven years before you uh, uh, lead. Uh, but the one who says, I, I, don't, I don't know, I don't know if this is, I, if I'm, that's the person, you're like, okay, I can, I can, that person can be developed. You have seasons of proven and fruitful service. Like they've been there, and when it's hard, they've been there when it's, uh, when it's been successful. They've been there when <clears throat> there was, uh, there was uh, uh, you know, trials. This person has proven themselves. That person is probably, again, um, uh, um, uh, developing their gift of leadership. And then uh, your greatest joy is hearing the Father's words, good and faithful servant. That a, a person gifted in leadership very rarely, or I should say, doesn't, doesn't regularly need to hear, good job, you did awesome, or man, you're such a good leader. Because at the end of the day, when it's getting late at night, say, God, how did I do today? And that's their motivation. That's where they're coming from. Uh, these aren't specific to leaders, but what I'm saying is that as we look at Christian leaders, it's very, you'll, you'll find very few of them that are genuinely gifted in this area that fall very far from this. They may struggle in some of these areas, but by and large, this is a person who's been put together to lead other people. And this is what the church in Jerusalem had when they chose those seven men that were filled with the Spirit. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 8, he says this to you. If you're gifted in this way, Paul says this, the one who's been gifted with leadership, do it with zeal. Do it with zeal. Do it like you mean it. Do it like people are watching you and you know you're going to make a difference. Do it as if you expect something to happen. Don't make it a job. God has gifted you for this in the body of Christ. If you don't do this, the body of Christ deteriorates. Do it with zeal, Paul says, as he's speaking to the church in Romans. If I was, if I was Paul, I'd say, hey, will the real leaders please stand up? cheesy. <laughs> I'm from Detroit. Uh, <clears throat> Will the real leaders please stand? Paul's saying, come on, you, there goes, there's a seriousness, there's a, a zeal, there's a passion that comes with this. You, 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 you know who you are. You should be doing this, <clears throat> Paul's saying. We need that in our church. We need those leading us in worship, us in building community, us in reaching out to our city. For some of you, you don't feel like you've been gifted in leadership because you feel you, the list that I, I put up there, you're like, oh man, I'm so far from one of these. But it doesn't mean that you haven't been called to leadership in some capacity. Some of you are called to lead in your homes. Man, that's a huge responsibility. Lead with zeal. 
Lead those kids. Don't wait until they're three or four or five and then you start doing Lead them now. For some of you, you're just called right now. God says your area of responsibility fits right here. Lead yourself. <laughs> Lead yourself. I can say this, in the church, I hope this doesn't sound pompous at all. In, in God's economy, you, you will never, by the Holy Spirit, be appointed to lead in God's family if you can't lead this domain and if you can't lead your personal family. And it's not because God is like, oh, you know, I mean, you, you don't have skills or natural talents. It's God would never do, he would never put that burden on you to lead an entire congregation when you struggle with this or with your family. And so I, I say this because I hope that it aspires us to leadership rather than just says, oh, you know, well, that's not me. I want, you, I want to aspire you men to lead in your families. You lead as co-equals with your wife, but I know the cultural pressure as a man to, to let the foot off the gas. So I want to encourage you to lead yourself and to lead in your family. Even if you don't have a family, maybe you're newly married or maybe you're just, you know, trying to get married, there's a sense in which you need to prepare yourself for that, that day when you, so you begin to lead in theory, right? It's, it sounds kind of weird, but you do this with your career. So if with, your, with, your, with your, your family mind, you begin to lead from this place of, okay, I know I have to do X, Y, and Z in order for A, B, and C to appear five years from now. Begin to do those things. Don't stray away from those things. All right. We move on to the gift of serving and helps. Uh, and these two will move a bit faster, but they're so, they're, leadership is left hand, serving and helps is right hand. They work together, okay? For many of us, uh, perhaps a larger half of us, we're gifted in doing direct ministry. Serving and help, they're not direction-based as much as they are action-oriented ministry. It's where the rubber meets the road. Serving and helps, that's where the rubber meets the road. It's where strategy is executed. Servants say, you guys are too theoretical. Let's just do the work, right? These are those who are gifted in serving. So in Acts 6, somebody had to cook the food, somebody had to distribute it, somebody had to hold hands, somebody had to feed uh, the sick, somebody had to give medicine to the sick, somebody had to talk to the doubters, somebody had to go out there and sit down with the skeptics and answer questions. There were servants that did these things, right? Not the, not the theorists. The majority of you are practically minded people. You care. And you just want to make a difference. What's the spiritual gift of serving? It's the part, uh, it's the part of the body of Christ that really you just you get the job done. Uh, it's, again, I said it's action, not theory-oriented. Secondly, it's serving a greater vision. Right? You're not just trying to kill time. You see that there's a greater vision. And that's why you're out there greeting people in the hallway. That's why you're leading a body life group. You know right? there's a, there's a, a greater vision uh, that you're shooting towards. It's willful, willful and not coerced. Nobody's forcing you to do this. You're doing this because you want to do it. It's people-based more than it is process-based. And this is the important distinction. We're going to talk about the gift of administration. But the gift of administration is more process-based than it is people-based. Servants just want to, they just want to impact people directly. Uh, it's responsibility-based more than it is task-based because it's about ownership. And then again, it brings people into the body because you're connecting with people directly, and then also you're ushering people out of the body, right? This is the, the connectedness of servants in the body of Christ has this effect. You bring them in, you send them out. How do you know if you're gifted in serving? Well, uh, here are some things. You feel the need to be practical about things. 
You're just like, if you ever said, oh, those guys are all talk, we just need to do something, you're probably gifted in this, right? That makes a lot of you guys uh, in this category. You understand the value of coming early, staying late, which means you have a good work ethic. Uh, you create work for yourself when there is none. Like there are things that need to happen and you're not waiting for instruction. You just, okay, we'll do it. Uh, administrative people find guys like me very frustrating, but you seem to understand. Like you just, you understand. You have, there's a patience for, for, for leadership. Administrative people, not so much. They're kind of like, you're not following protocol. But servants, you're just kind of like, no, I understand. We understand. Okay. And this is where uh, the gift of helps is, is important as well. Because uh, the gift of helps, and Paul doesn't really, he doesn't expound, uh, expound on the gift of helps as much. But helps is very practically minded. But see, where, um, where people who uh, serve or who are administratively minded, they're frustrated with like, you know, uh, leadership type people because they never follow protocol and they never follow rules that they set themselves. Um, and servant minded are kind of like indifferent. They're just kind of like, well, we're getting the job done. We're vision oriented. Uh, those who, who are helps oriented, they actually have this sense of compassion towards the leaders. Because they're, they're kind of like, okay, let me help. Like, let, let me come around those who are bearing the brunt of the burden. Let me just come around them. So they're not so much like, they're not like very specifically towards a task or a responsibility, but they just want to help people because they, they have a compassion inside of them. And so I would say that differentiates those who serve and those who have that gift of helps. And there's a part of me that I have that piece of me that I have a, uh, the gift of helps because I can't bear for people to suffer. Like, I just, I don't have a high tolerance. When people are suffering, like, I just, I want to help. Like, this has always been a part of me. I've always in the ch- uh, served in the church when I was a, a little kid, and I came around my leadership, not because I ever felt like I was gifted, but I just didn't want my pastor to be doing it all alone. Like, I didn't want my, my elders to kind of, uh, to struggle along the way. So l- let me research this for you. Let me do this for you. So if you ever think I'm a control freak, it's not because I'm a control freak. I'm a help freak. I love helping people. Right? And so my, uh, my, but my pastor, like before he even gave me a position in the church to serve in the church, like I would come around and say, hey, what do you need me to do? Make copies for you? Like, let me just make your job easier. Right? The, the, these people are so indispensable in the church. You can't, you can't have church without people like that. And we are blessed to have people like that in our church. Um, and you serve a very specific role in our church. So um, the band's up here. That means I'm supposed to be off of the stage. <laughs> <laughs> but let me pull up a list of uh, areas in our church uh, that you can get involved with uh, in leadership, serving, or helping. We're a small church. I mean, there's maybe 80, 90, 100 of us or so. Uh, but we have 26 things going on in our church. Um, and so I'm not going to go through it all. But I want you to take a long glance and, and kind of look at this um, and uh, say, man, you know, let me get practically minded about my belonging to Trinity Life Church. And hey, you may not even be fully convinced of the Christian faith yet. We're not saying to you, don't get involved. Everybody, this is a chance. As a matter of fact, for some of us, your faith will continue to grow the more you get involved. Because it's about relationships more than it is about answering questions. And so we have so many things here categorized in things from like worshiping to um, building community to reaching out to our city, St. Jamestown, big city, big question. We're thinking about Pakistan. Um, So so many things. I just... I don't want to overwhelm you. That's not the point. But I want to show you that there's so much potential. If somebody ever said, oh, there's nothing to do at Trinity Life Church, I'm like, that's a big understatement here at our church. There's a lot for you to, to get involved in. It may take a year or a year and a half before you feel like you're like, you know, in a sweet spot. But I just want to encourage you. 
And this is not to put any pressure on anybody. As a matter of fact, I want to end our time with a passage from Luke chapter 10. Because again, I don't, this is, I, we do not want to create burnt out workers or leaders. That is not the point. And this is why I'm ending with this passage from Luke chapter 10. This is a story from Jesus' um, uh, life and ministry. And Luke records this. It says that now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve her alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which would not be taken away from her. And Martha gets the bad rap sometimes when you hear the story. She's the burnt out one. She's the one that she's doing too much. But I want you to focus on the compassion that Jesus has for her. There's a sense in which Jesus is saying, you're so gifted, Martha. You have to come back to the source that gave you this gift. What Jesus is doing is he's releasing her to do more, not less. She might be able to accomplish more by doing less, but he's reconnecting her to the source of why she was serving in the first place. And for some of us, the sustenance for being a part of the body of Christ and continuing to do to, to, the, the thing that you're doing to make the difference is to plug back into the person of Jesus. For some of us, it means that you have to honestly consider what it means to trust Jesus as your Lord. How do I, how do I jump into this thing called Christianity? Because I'm not a church person. Jesus gave a very simple invitation. He just said, you see Mary, she's sitting next to me. She's observing me. That's the best thing that you can do right now. And so when we talk about leadership and serving or following Christ, the best thing that you can do is come to him. Sit at his feet. He is so compassionate. It's not Jesus' heart to burn anybody out. He doesn't want anybody operating in a place of witness where people look at from the outside and said, oh, look at all those burnt out Christians. But at the same time, he knows that when you come to him, you will be more fruitful. You will be more fruitful in leadership and in serving when you come to him. And lastly, I want to uh, speak to those who you've been serving and you, man, I, I love that, you know, tree life is built on your backs. You've been serving. Jesus this morning wants to remind you why you've been serving. It's not because we have a grand mission, a vision statement. This morning, Jesus wants to remind you that you get to sit at his feet. That's the best thing. You get the front row seat of what Jesus is doing in this body. And I want to thank you. And your Lord, he wants to thank you. Let me uh, pray for us as we jump into communion. God, I know that uh, uh, what you're doing here is so much more than what we can see. I can only imagine about a generation from now, the stories that would emerge. <clears throat> because of somebody's faithfulness um, in this community.
about people coming to faith through programs getting passed out. Just, it didn't compute, compute in my mind. Um, how people come to faith and their lives are changed because we set up a chair or we host a body life group or we serve pizza in St. Jamestown. God, that's where I'm convinced that it's a work of the Spirit because from the human perspective, it just looks like we're having fun or we're doing life. God, I pray that you would do that more. And as we come to the table this morning, as we receive the communion elements, I pray that you would impart more of your gifting to those who are in leadership and serving and helps. That if that's you, God is saying, do it with zeal with passion. He sees your work. Thank you. So thank you, Jesus, that you were the ultimate leader that became a servant, that you flipped the power upside down, and that you served us so that we could become leaders. And so, Lord, this morning we receive the work of Jesus on the cross. We see our leader who died as a servant. We say thank you, and we want to live that way as well.